This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the gaze turns inward to see real beauty, we discuss the mechanics of vances. Then with my path takes me strange places, we talk about the setting of Invisible Sun with an introduction to Saturine. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. With the gaze turns inward to see real beauty, we discuss aspects of Invisible Sun characters. In this segment, we discuss the mechanics of the Vancean order. Vances are an interesting order. Uh, both they conveniently start uh, the list of orders in uh, the uh, key uh, and are based upon sort of a, a legacy of spellcasting mechanics coming from early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. I think this might have also been the first order we talked about, right? <laughs> I probably was, since I think the order of the blog posts mirrors the order of the discussion in the key. Yeah, so, uh, hey, we're talking about Vance's again. We're, we're revisiting <laughs> the orders. Yes, we have more information now, and we can talk about the actual rules as opposed to just going off of a few sentences in a blog post. Uh uh, so we'll be, I'm sure, covering some of the same territory. But uh, first of all, welcome new listeners. Second, uh, this is a good time to kind of confirm what we now know to be true about Vance's. Uh, also, uh, we can talk about them in the context of a, a great deal more of the game. Uh, as, and we'll be revisiting all of the orders uh, and various elements of characters in segments as we move forward. In some sense, this episode 50 uh, and the launch of the game has given us an opportunity to restart, uh, but now with official information rather than our uh, famous baseless speculation. Yeah, so now when we get things wrong, we're we're just wrong. We're just wrong. By the way, we're just going to be wrong sometimes. Um, and that, that's how it goes. <laughs> cool. So, so Vance's. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked in the various playtest groups that I've worked with, uh, and even now some of the groups that are starting up. Um, Vance's seem to be the least popular of the orders. I I think it's because of that legacy that they've got with the old, well, not old, but other RPG systems like D and D. I think they, old they is the proper term. Familiar. <laughs> yes, they they, yeah. they they feel familiar, and maybe people want to try something new. Though I will say uh, that in reading the description of Vance's in the key, um, I was persuaded that they're more interesting than the, than I thought they were. I agree. So. So uh, I'm encouraged that more people, when they have have the full information in front of them, may be intrigued by Vance's in ways that they might have missed in uh, the playtests. So don't take the lack of popularity in the playtests as an indication that there is uh, necessarily a uh, you know a, a problem with the order itself. I recently ran a game in preparation for Gen Con, and we had a Vance at the table, and the Vance is a really interesting order. Um, and I'm going to have advance in the ongoing campaign that we're going to start up next month. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Excellent. And we'll conclude this segment talking about who might want to play Vance's, the type of, of player that might be attracted to playing Vance's. Uh, but let's let's talk only briefly about the historical tradition. Uh, some of this we've covered mm-hmm. before. Uh, Vance's come from uh, so-called Vancean magic, uh, based upon the writings of Jack Vance, which were influential in the initial design of Dungeons and Dragons. In these books, spells were memorized and expended like a resource, which was convenient for a game based still in its roots of uh, wargaming where resource management was a key part of of the game. Uh, So in this case, wizards and magic users would uh, figure out a list of spells that they had memorized, and every time they cast one, they'd cross it off of the list. And that became known as Vancean magic. Uh, It exists in various forms and in modified versions in current editions of Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, and the like, Uh, mostly innovations that have loosened the strict... uh, fire and forget model of spellcasting, but mm-hmm. the legacy of Vancean magic is still easy to, to find in uh, uh, many popular uh, uh, fantasy RPGs. So it seemed natural in a game that was trying to model a variety of different magic using styles to include one that has this classical RPG feel of Vancean magic. It's someone who consider who memorizes and expends spells, though this is a little more complicated than that classic minimalist uh, resource management tradition. Yeah, I like the the twist that the Vances have on that tradition. And the 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 uh, the twist is one that might sound a little better than it may may play out, but bear with us. Casting is free. However, when you cast a spell, uh, you lose that spell, which is a sort of the fire and forget model of Vancian magic. You can spend your sorcery points to retain the spell rather than expending it. So again, casting is free, but remembering or retaining that spell is what costs you resources. So I guess with a starting Vance, you might have some spells that are level two or three. And we haven't really gone over like a a rules overview, but casting a spell, what you're going to be spending from your sorcery pool is generally Bene equal to the level of the spell. Um, That can be modified by the Sooth deck uh, and other things, but that's generally what you're looking at. And that holds for all of the orders, more or less. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we probably should do a segment on just the general mechanics of spellcasting now that I think about it. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> but for most of the orders, casting a spell requires the expenditure of, of, of sorcery equal to the level of the spell. With some, There's some flexibility in there and the more complexity it's available. But that's a good starting point for understanding the system. So what Vances could do, if they had a, a level two spell, they could cast it and not spend anything at all if they're willing to give up that spell um, until they could, you know, get, they could retain it and some other long break, um, or they can spend the two points to retain the spell to have an option to cast it again later. What this results in is that, uh, in some sense, Vances get more spells per bene than any other order. They're more efficient at casting spells than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But the spells that they're getting access to from the Vancian order are pretty straightforward and simple in comparison to a lot of the other spells that are out there, I think. I, I think, well, especially compared to weaving or other sorts of magic, which is defined on the fly or defined entirely by the player, it is more limiting, uh, mm-hmm. but it is, 
it, it, I don't want to overstate how straightforward it is. It's not entirely a list of magic missiles and shields. Yep. Uh, there are other spell effects that I think are comparable to the sorts of spell effects you would expect to see in other fantasy RPGs. Uh, one one example would have been there's a spell that when you cast it, you you basically the creature that you're talking to hears the opposite of what you're saying in whatever native tongue that they speak. Uh, and that was used <laughs> to great effect in, uh, well, the session that I just ran. Uh, so that while well, the Vance could speak to a creature that didn't really have a discernible language. <laughs> so it's the opposite day spell. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, no, it isn't. <laughs> the other twist for the Vance is that rather than having a simple list of spells uh, from a, a traditional fantasy RPG, there's a physical grid uh, that you fit your spells into. So instead of simply saying, oh, you can only have one third level spell and two second level spells and three first level spells, there's a grid. You could have whatever spells you want that fit in this grid. Now, fourth level spells aren't going to fit in this grid at all, but you might have one third level spell or you might have two second level spells or three. And it just whatever you can fit Tetris wise into your grid uh, will work uh, or be retained in your memory. Uh, and I think it might be important to note that, yeah, spells for advance have levels, but there are also different categories of spells. You have alpha, beta, gamma, and omega spells, and the amount of space your spells take up is more dependent upon that category than on the level itself. Uh, so an alpha spell could still be a level three spell effect, um, but it's going to take up just as much room as a level four alpha spell. Right. The the alpha, beta, gamma uh, is what determines the size of the spell rather than level. You're, you're absolutely correct. Though there is, there's a correlation there. <laughs> the, the bigger yes. effects tend to be the gamma spells. The alpha spells have more limited effects, mm -hmm. though you could hypothetically pour sorcery or have higher level alpha spells. Um, but they're, uh, are, they're not going to have the breadth of effect that gamma spells will. Yeah. And I haven't really looked at the, the bigger spells, but so you can only fit a, a, a couple of spells initially. Like, how do you adjust for that as you become more powerful as a Vance? Vance uh, Vance's advance, that's going to be Ugh. tricky. Vance's advance in Vancian several ways <laughs> uh, as they increase in the degree of their order. Most obviously, the size of the grid itself increases at the third and fifth degree. So you have more... Uh, space to put your spells into these are little one inch uh, uh, squares and you just have more squares uh, that you could put your spells into so you could think of the capacity of your mind increasing at the third and um, fifth degree so a first order vance uh, i gotta remember what their actual titles are but a postulant a postulant a, a first level vance they're going to be able to fit two alpha spells in their grid and uh, a third degree is going to be able to fit, I want to say, about four. And a fifth degree would be able to fit around six. Uh, but there are other things that can change that, just so that we have some sort of frame of reference. Yeah, to give you some some benchmarks, because it, it'll be a little more complicated, because in addition, uh, you notice the grid only increases at the third and fifth degree. At the second, fourth, and I believe the sixth degree, they can also reduce the size of some of their spells. So they can they can take an alpha spell and basically cut reduce its its 
a size in half. So you could have two of the half size spells in the, in the space of one of the full size spells. And you could do that to any spell that you, that you currently know. Right. And man, I know I'm wrong about how many spells you can fit, but it, it gets bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, I can, I can tell you the sizes that like a first, a postulate that is a first degree, uh, Vance has a, a grid that is three inches by three inches, but I don't recall exactly how many alpha spells versus beta spells that that I want to say uh, an alpha spell inc- is an inch and a half by three inches. So probably two of those. Yeah. Yeah. You can fit two of those. Um, but anyway, I need to pull out the physical components and take a look at them to actually say for sure. And I'm not going to do is that. An exa- <laughs> and this is an example of where the game is, is, in, is built to be, to rely upon physical components. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's, it, it, you want to have physical manipulables. That's part of the experience. And so having these cards is part of the experience of playing advance. So the, the cards that you're going to get, they, you're going to be able to reduce the spells that you know by half. Uh, the size of those spells. Yeah. yeah. And when you make those selections for which spells you can reduce their size of, uh, it's it's that spell that you choose. You don't get to change which spell you want to make half size every time you prepare spells, right? No, I believe it's at the uh, at the advancement to a new degree. Okay. You can reduce the occupying space of two spells to half their original size. So I would make players choose that at their advancement. Okay. Yeah, and that, that's how I was reading it too. Um, cool. There's also some ambiguity in, uh, at, I believe at the same time you can reduce spell sizes, you can learn one new Vancian spell that can fit into your mind at no cost. Now, I read this two different ways when I was reading through it. I, I'm pretty sure the intent is that you can learn a spell that is that could hypothetically fit into your mind. And then whatever that spell is, it will have half the cost to learn it. I'm sorry, not half the cost. Uh, you can learn it uh, automatically. Yeah. Right. It is not that it is the mind at no cost, that it, you don't learn a spell that has no cost to memorize. Yeah, I, I would read it that that first way. The former, um, it seems like it has a the little learning bit of is no language cost. there that you don't need. Like learn advanced spell, right? Learn well. The, the the trick is that they they want to make sure you're only learning spells you could hypothetically cast. Yes, well, learn a learn a spell that you can fit in your mind. Right. So you can't at at first um, at first order as a postulate learn a gamma spell because that wouldn't even fit in your mind. But what it almost reads as, if you really wanted to wanted it to, to to read this way, is that the spell you learn can fit into your mind at no cost, meaning no space. But I don't believe that's the intent of that rule. Yeah, I don't think that is. Um, did you look into casting spells, Vance spells, without preparation? I did not. Uh, so this is a thing that... Like, do we want to get into those sort of mechanics or is that a later discussion? I think that's a later discussion because I, we'll, we'll want to be able to compare that to other systems of casting. Yeah, then we should do that because I believe you can also learn spells as advanced mm-hmm. that you would be able to cast in a Vancian sort of way. And that's something else we should dig into uh, in addition to casting without preparation. 
Yeah, it so is, there's, it there's is a so... bit of flexibility for the Vance outside of here's your spell list that you can work with. But it, it takes a bit of extra work for the Vance to do these things. Yeah, another source of flexibility in sort of longer term play is that in order to advance, Vances are required to develop new spells. That's going to be fun and potentially game breaking. Potentially so, but really no more so than, you know, every Tuesday for a weaver. Yeah, no kidding. I was going to say every single time a weaver casts a spell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Weaver, are you sure you're following the, you know, uh, spirit of the aggregate you're weaving into this? Right. It's um, we'll, we'll get to weavers pretty soon, uh, mm-hmm. but the um, you know, they are spontaneously determining their spell effects each time. And there are guidelines in the game for what it w- what it should cost to achieve a certain effect. Those will likely be useful for Vance's in order to determine the level of what their spell is. Not exactly. It's not going to be a one to one match because of the loss of, of, of improvisational ability in, in the weaver. But it'll give you at least a sense of of what sort of considerations might drive spell level in terms of duration, number of creatures affected, what type of effects. Uh, it gives you the sorts of questions you need to uh, compare spells uh, in order to fit a that a newly developed spell is level four versus six versus two or whatever. So, Scott, who do you think wants to play Advance? Well, as I said, these, these weren't popular in the play test, but having read through the material, I can see a type of player who would be attracted to Advance. First, uh, this is a, the type of, of character that actually casts more spells than anybody else. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so if you want to sling spells, this is the order for you. Uh, I found it, you know, it, with my playtest group, the weavers kept running out of sorcery very rapidly. Uh, uh, that and, was my experience as well. I uh, cast one or two spells and well, now I'm out of sorcery. I need to refresh and I'm nearly out of those. So what am I going to do? And at the point that a, uh, a it, it could be that a Vance has cast two spells um, and not actually spent any sorcery at all. Yep. It just depends on which spells they're casting and what they memorized and which ones they've decided they want to retain for future casting. So if you want to be efficient and cast spells most often, uh, this is the order for you. Uh, This is also an order that builds in the need to design new spells into advancement. And it does so in, in a way that you have to prepare the spell well in advance. And so you're kind of researching the spell and comparing it to other spells to figure out how what spell level it would be and whether it's too similar to other spells. If that sort of academic orientation towards spell development uh, appeals to you, that's that's advance. We should uh, have and, a about designing new spells. Yeah, that may be f- further down the line. Oh, yeah, further down the um, line, we should have like, hey, are you thinking about building a new spell for as advance? Listen yeah. to this episode. That would be a, it would be a good segment. Uh, and, and finally, and this this crosses over into the uh, kind of role playing role or the setting role of Vance's, which is not something we talked about in this particular segment, but we may get to back to in a more setting oriented segment. Uh, that Vance's uh, delight in the bureaucratic organizational politics of their order. So some of their abilities involve being able to tell lower. Uh, lower degree vances to go do assignments for them 
And they, uh, in order to advance, there's ceremonies that have to be performed in order to elevate someone from a first to a second uh, degree Vance. And if you really like this sort of academic or bureaucratic organizational politics of magic, uh, and you want to play in that world, uh, almost like a Hogwarts sort of setting, I think Vance's would be an appealing way to do that. Anything else you want to say about Vance's? Uh, no, uh, everything I want to say about Vance's, I think it should be reserved for another segment where we talk about uh, the other ways that you can cast Vancean spells and designing magic or designing new spells with them. So, oh, and then, you know, we should also be talking about the whole organization uh, at a certain point in a different type of segment that we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> yes, and we, we will do that in the near future as well as the advanced Vancean magic. Then we can talk about advancing advanced Vancean magic oh, God. Uh, to make life as hard as possible for ourselves. I will make you beat more things if you keep saying Vance. With my path takes me strange places, we discuss the setting of Invisible Sun. This time we're going to take a broad look at the city of Saturine. So we're going to be starting with an overview of Saturine as a whole, because in reading the setting information, uh, I think, Scott, you might agree with me, but Saturine is a much bigger and much more important part of the setting than, well, at least I was under the impression of during the Kickstarter. I agree. Yeah, because in the lead up, I thought that there would be a whole lot more about the other suns that was going to show up in the settings book or the setting book. But Saturine is really going to be the place that you're going to be focused on uh, for most starting campaigns. Um, and there's even going to be a book coming, the uh, silent streets. Oh, I should look that one up, uh, but there's going to be a book that's focused specifically on Saturine. So even though we have a ton of information about Saturine itself, we're going to be getting an entire book focused just on the city. Uh, so Saturine is a huge and important part of this game. So how about we uh, go over the history a little bit? We've, we've talked about all this before. Uh, a lot of this was in the Kickstarter. Uh, but hey, we're <laughs> restarting pretty much everything. So let's, let's do a, a quick little overview of the history. Um, so Saturine was uh, founded thousands of years ago by uh, a race that existed before uh, the humans did. And they worshipped the god, the well, they worshipped the angular serpentine, I believe. Uh, I forget exactly what their name is, but they show up every once in a while in the in the setting book. Um, but it was upon this city that Saturine was founded. And it was a trading hub for thoughts, ideas, and sensations, which is what Saturine is, you know, what their major trade is. Uh, so if you check out the emotion mills, that's, that's their big thing. Uh, so fast forward to, you know, where we are in the timeline for Invisible Sun, Saturine has been devastated by the war. Uh, and that's about all we're going to talk about for the war. We don't talk about it. Yeah, we're not talking about it. So we, we, we won't even cover it here on this podcast. Uh, so let's just talk about the Deathless Triumvirate first. Uh, so, uh, these are three godlike beings that rule over the city now, and they've each got a physical and an ephemeral aspect. 
that physical aspect you can generally find floating in a citadel above the Marquis district. Uh, so the way that many people think of the Deathless Triumvirate is that they are the mind of the city and the city is the body. And as a fun little note, uh, the angular serpentine is considered to be the demon that possesses the city. Uh, I forget what that's from. There, there was some note in the book that mentions that. Or maybe it was in one of the uh, annotations. Yeah, the angular serpentine comes up occasionally, uh, more often than not, in like rumors about the presence of the angular serpentine, its influence in the city, uh, and it's it's poised to be a kind of long term protagonist or the organizing principle for a protagonist group, for someone who's challenging the powers that be uh, in the Saturnine itself. Yeah, uh, we should probably dig into the angular serpentine at some point because there's there are a bunch of rumors about that thing uh, that are in the books, and I think we'd probably be able to put something together to talk about it. Maybe we in the future we can talk about how to how one could build a campaign around the angular serpentine. Though uh, this game is not one that is that inclines towards long planned story mm. arcs. No, not really, unless the players decide, hey, we're interested in this thing. Right. Uh, okay, so daily life in uh, Saturnine. Uh, so this was one of the things that I wasn't sure about during the Kickstarter. Uh, like, how populated is this city? And it really depends on where you are. Uh, districts can be very busy, uh, but it seems like there are parts of districts that could be very busy. But then it's also very common to find other parts of a district to be sparsely populated or even abandoned, uh, at least feel abandoned. And this is because the population is no longer what it once was uh, because of the devastation. The, the city of Saturnine is not very populated anymore. Another thing to note about Saturnine is that since there's no mass production, Everything in the city is unique. So buildings don't look like one another. You don't have, you know, rows of houses that were all built in the same fashion. You don't have clothing that is the same. Everything is, everything's unique. Um, I, I don't want to say everything is handmade because, you know, we've got magic. So all these things can be crafted, uh, but everything is, is done as a sort of one-off sort of experience. I would totally have tracked housing be an aspect of the angular serpentine. Why is that? Oh, just because it would it'd almost be an infection of the city. Yeah, it, it would be something that really sticks out. Like the, uh, hmm, I can't think of the right word for it. What's the right word for a whole bunch of things that look the same that stands out in stark contrast to a city full of dissimilar architecture? I would just say a shocking similarity. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would be very strange to see. Um, so uh, I guess going along with the uh, uniqueness of everything and everything being uh, custom made, Fashion seems to be inspired by the 1920s. Uh, that's our frame of reference here in Shadow. Uh, but over in the actuality, that's just the style. That's how things tend to look. Uh, but much more important than how 
fashion is as a whole, everybody has their own unique sort of style. Everything about your style is going to be an expression of yourself. So this, you know, if you're into fashion, I mean, hey, here's the thing that you can latch on to. This is a game that supports cosplay (laughs) at a very fundamental level. Yeah. Um, so in addition to all the folks on A Woman with Hollow Eyes and The Raven Wants What You Have, uh, I've seen a few other things out there that I'm guessing are going to show up at Gen Con. Oh, which if you're listening to this, hey, uh, hi, it's Gen Con. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I hope the game went well this morning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I'll have had three games under my belt once this comes out. I will have I'll had be one. done running Invisible Sun. <laughs> You'll have one more chance if you catch this podcast right when it comes out to uh, hop in my game noon on Saturday if there are tickets available, which I don't think there are right now, but you never know. Yeah, you always just show up and maybe somebody is hung over and didn't make it. That's not an unusual occurrence on Saturdays. <laughs> nope, not unusual. Uh, okay, so the population of Saturn, we've got, you know, humans. Uh, hey, humans are a thing. Um, then there are Vizlay, which are the children of Vizla. And Vizlay are generally human, right? Yes. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure uh, where things landed there. Um, but then there are all sorts of other people that live in the city. Uh, and probably the most prominent would be the thought forms that take care of a lot of the labor in the city. So any sort of general labor is typically handled by thought forms. Anytime you need uh, an occupation to be handled by somebody with adaptability or talent, that's where you're going to have real people in those positions. Uh, so thought forms, the way I've been thinking about them is they're basically autonomous magic people that just do a job and that's what they are programmed to do. Yeah. It creates an interesting sort of class politics of Saturine. The thought forms are created and are limited in a variety of ways, but could otherwise look human. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might, this might be the uh, carriage driver. This might be the porter. This might be uh, the salesperson uh, at a shop. Uh, they maybe if they are you know, laboring in the city, it is likely that they are thought forms rather than people, um, and that it, it might create discomfort in an interesting way to uh, inquire about how what obligations we have towards uh, thought forms, and whether them being thought forms means we have any different obligations to to treat them uh, one way or or another. Um, and that which raises questions kind of of more general of ethics of how we organize our societies in ways uh, that create distinctions between, you know, cr- you know, creators, creatives, uh, laborers uh, and various degrees in between. Yeah, and I, I actually this rubs me a little bit oddly. Uh, I know that there have been discussions about, hey, shadow doesn't exist. So what does that mean for? all of human history and all of the suffering that exists in our real world. Are we just saying that it doesn't exist and it doesn't matter and we can just hand wave it? Like the, the thought forms here, they feel a lot weirder than saying our reality is a fiction. And I'm, it's, it's easier for me to 
just sort of roll with that one then with this whole host of people that exist in the actuality who aren't human but look and act and are nearly indistinguishable from humans yeah i will likely uh, distinguish thought forms somehow um so that one doesn't get the impression that oh well this person's a laborer in satyrene so they're not a real person and i i don't yeah, like that that collation of of labor and not being real uh, and so I, I would want to create some sort of distinction there because it is, it is, it rubs me the, the wrong way. Uh, and there's some, I think there's ways to work that so that thought forms may exist, but maybe they are very clearly, uh, non-sentient and they don't draw into question the reality or kind of ontological status or moral status of, of anyone who labors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they exist and I'm, I'm going to be working with this one and trying to figure it out because, Hey, there, I mean, what if you have a thought form Butler who answers your door and lets guests in or out and is also responsible for basically the upkeep of your house and making sure things run right and makes a lot of decisions about how your whole life works. I mean, there's, that's a thing that is going to come up. Um, and Hey, I guess spoilers for the Gen Con session. I'm trusting that people who are here are, either have already played in one or maybe you're going to hop into the one on Saturday. So sorry, five to 10 people, <laughs> but you know, it's thought forms are, are basically people. They're hard to distinguish from real people unless you study them closely. Um, you can tell that somebody is a thought form. Uh, but if you're not paying attention to it, they're indistinguishable from people. Anyway, thought forms. Uh, maybe we should come back and talk about that at some point. Yeah, once we figure out what we, what, what we think about it. Yeah, um, like, yeah. okay, Elderbrin. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's move on. Uh, Elderbrin are uh, the shapeshifters that live in the actual, well, they live, yeah, they live in the actuality. And they make up about a fifth of the population in Saturine. And they live uh, on the streets or they live under the streets. They don't really care about uh, the same sorts of things that humans do. Like they don't really look at money as a thing that they really give much of a hoot about. Um, they are like they're shapeshifters. So they don't really have a, a permanent shape that they like to, you know, put on. Um, so they're, are they nomadic in nature? I think I remember reading that. Well, I know there's several, and you know, there's many of them are permanent fixtures in Saturine. Mm -hmm. So I believe they're maybe nomadic under some of the suns, or most commonly nomadic under some of the suns, uh, but they aren't by nature nomadic or universally or uniformly nomadic. Well, Elderbrin are, are a thing. They, they hang out in Saturine. Uh, so they're around if you need shapeshifters. Uh, then the Lacuna are also another people that live in Saturine. They're, they're a much smaller portion of the population than the Elderbrin. And these are the strange voids into another place that look humanoid, um, but they look like windows into another, another, you know, sun or another world or whatever. And you can even, I guess, go through them if you want to. Uh, I haven't read too much about the lacuna and how they feel about being used as portals, but I think it's something that you could talk them into. Yeah, there isn't a lot of detail on it. 
but Not they yet. can be used as portals um, and they choose where they sit, where they uh, are portals to. Which could be very interesting. Could be very interesting. Right. Uh, then there are also uh, all sorts of peoples from other half worlds that exist uh, in Saturn. Uh, don't really have a whole lot about half worlds, but you know, some of those might be the uh, virus worlds that hook onto the night side of the green sun. Uh, and then other, you know, do you, we'll talk about half worlds at some other point. Uh, and then you've also got ghosts, demons, and angels that hang out in the city. Uh, one other interesting populace would be the dead who are the people from the pale that have been granted permission to leave the pale and go hang out somewhere else. Um, so the culture that you've got in Saturn, it's going to be dancing in nightclubs in the evening. Uh, people want to be entertained and they want to have a good time. So it's just like in shadow, uh, this sort of stuff exists. The, uh, school is also something that kids are going to be going to. So you've got various amounts of schooling that the different classes of children will be attending, um, because, Class structure is something that defines society in Saturn. So I think tying that into, you know, the whole discussion that we may want to have about thought forms at some point is going to be something we want to come back to. And also uh, apostates. And the connection between the orders and social class. Yes. Uh, yeah. So then last, let, I'm just going to touch on the laws, but basically governance trickles down from the deathless triumvirate. Uh, and then each district is going to have its own local government. That's, uh, led by, uh, a Garant. Garant? How would you pronounce that? I, I don't know what the right answer is. Cool. Um, well, <laughs> I don't know either. Um, basically you're going to have a, a local head of the government in each district and they, tend to pass that sort of uh, station down between families. Uh, and then they're also in charge of generally in charge of putting together uh, the local law enforcement and uh, any sort of uh, fire brigade. If one is needed, uh, they also handle uh, local grievances and rulings and, you know, judging and whatnot. Um, but the laws and the enforcement of the laws isn't really super structured in Saturn. Like the obvious crimes like murder and assault generally are defined for the whole city. But when it comes to smaller stuff, it's a judgment call based on which district you're in. So it's a very federal sort of system. Yes. But <laughs> very federal and perhaps a bit libertarian. Well, or that the uh, how... With, with what strictness and what breadth the laws are enforced may vary by district. Yes. So yeah, you may they, have a libertarian market district, uh, but a very strictly controlled, uh, you know, upper class district or artisan district or something, something like that. Yeah. So um, we're going to be talking about the 17 districts of Saturn at some point. Um, you know, we'll probably lump a couple of them together so that, you know, we have plenty to talk about for each segment, but uh, overall, Saturn is where you're going to be spending a lot of your time. This is where your uh, Visley's houses are going to be located. They're actually going to be located in uh, Fartown, which is 
what is that? That's not a district of Saturn, is it? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a district of Saturn that folds into its own sort of space. So it connects to Saturn, but is in some ways protected from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is seen as advantageous if something really uh, uh, bad were to develop within Fartown, whether a spell goes wrong or something like that. Uh, it's sort of pinched off into its own space uh, and uh, buffered from Saturn, but it is connected to and I believe considered a district of Saturn. Yeah, and I'll have to live, I'll have to read through that again. Um, but basically, there are 17 districts that we're going to go through. Um, and I think Fartown might be a good place to start if that's one of them. And if it's not, we'll probably start with Fartown anyway. <laughs> well, it's, uh, Fartown is where you probably have the highest concentration of Vizlay and also some of the most detail in the books. Uh, so a lot of campaigns will likely be set uh, or spend a lot of time there. Yep. All right. So um, we'll, we'll talk about Saturn again in the future. So have a good Gen Con, and uh, yeah, if if we see you there, uh, say hi. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, and A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R on Twitter. You can also find me occasionally on the Truth Bleeds at Twilight actual play on the Monty Cook Games Twitch channel. Hey, you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. Leave us leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, that would be great. We'd love to see them. Uh, also, tell tell your friends about this show. Uh, that is a good way to spread the word and get more listeners. And uh, yeah, uh, 